Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC in New York, I'm Charlie Sykes. This is Indivisible, public radio's live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. And this is our 12th week of the Trump era. And of course, as it has been in every other week, the pace hasn't slowed down a bit. Trump administration launched missiles against Syria after the horrific use of chemical weapons there. A naval armada steams toward Korea as tensions rise there. The Secretary of State meets with Vladimir Putin in Moscow, and there are reports that Stephen Bannon may be on his way out at the White House. Uh, Here's a pro tip. Uh, Don't get into a fight with the boss's son-in-law. It was also a terrible week for public relations. Pepsi had to pull a controversial ad, but that was overshadowed by the genuinely, I think the technical word is craptacular way, that United Airlines handled the case of a passenger they tried to bump from one of their flights. No, this is wrong. Oh, my God. Look at what you did to him. Yeah, that was bad enough. It only got worse when the CEO of United put out a statement Regretting the need to, his word, reaccommodate the passengers. Reaccommodate, as in drag you beaten and bloodied off a plane. But if there was a competition for really, really bad public relations this week, the winner may have been the press secretary for the president of the United States, Sean Spicer, who said this. You know, someone as despicable as Hitler, who didn't even sink to, the, to, the, to using chemical weapons. Yeah, uh, Zyklon B. Well, then he tried to explain, and he managed to make it even worse. I just want to give you the opportunity to clarify something you said that seems to be getting some traction right now. Uh, quote, Hitler didn't even sink to the level of using chemical weapons. What did you mean by that? I, I think when you come to sarin gas, uh, there was no, he was not using the gas on his own people the same way that Ashad is doing. I mean, there was clearly. I, I, I understand your point. Thank you. I, I thank you. I appreciate that. There was not in the in the. He brought him into the to um, to the Holocaust Center. I understand that. But I'm saying in the way that Assad used them, where he went into towns, dropped them down to innocent into the middle of towns. It was brought. To, so the use of it. And I appreciate the clarification there. That was not the intent. Yeah, as I uh, tweeted out afterwards, facepalm times uh, what six million. Which brings me. To our show tonight. Now, people always ask me, you know, how do you choose your guests for this show? And, and my answer is really pretty simple. Uh, I want to talk to really smart, interesting people. And that really is not as easy as you might think, because there are a lot of people who are very smart and, well, quite frankly, uh, eye-glazingly boring. 
Uh, and then there are people who are really, really interesting who, well, I'm thinking about Ian Coulter here. Uh, but, but our guest tonight, um, <laughs> later, later uh, uh, tonight, um, National Review writer David French is going to be talking about trends that are tearing us apart, maybe something that might be bringing us together. But right now, I am joined by Tom Nichols via Skype, who officially is both smart, smart and interesting. He's officially smart because he's a five-time undefeated Jeopardy champion. Okay, so that's, that's official. He's also the author of a new book called The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. And his day job is as a professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College. He's, he's in something called the National Security Decision-Making Department. And Tom Nichols joins me on Indivisible. Good evening. How are you, sir? Very well, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Okay, so when you're a professor of national security affairs in the decision-making department, so you're the guy basically who helps people decide, do you push the button, do you not push the button, do you launch the missile, you don't launch the missile? Well, um, well, first thing I should say is I don't represent the War College yeah. here, but I can tell you what we do all day, which is uh, we actually teach military officers kind of how the national security system works. Uh, everything from, you know, how does the defense budget get made to what does the National Security Council look like? Uh, how do senior decisions uh, work their way through the system? And how, how, you know, what makes the wheels go around in Washington when it comes to the actual execution of national security affairs? Well, we, we want to talk about that. I want to get to some of those specific issues that are in the news right <clears throat> now. And our phone number is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. You can also tweet to us with the hashtag Indivisible Radio. And one of the things I want to talk about is what is the Trump doctrine? Um, what what is was actually happening right now out in the in, in the Pacific Ocean? We've gone from a president that was talking about America first, now um, suggesting that uh, if he sees horrific pictures anywhere in the world, he might do something about it. But uh, uh, Tom, I want to start off by talking about your uh, very very provocative book, The Death of Expertise. Uh, which you describe as a Google-fueled, Wikipedia-based, blog-sodden collapse of any division between professionals and laymen, students and teachers, knowers and wanderers. In other words, between those of any achievement in an area and those with none at all. And what you, you, you write is that what you fear has died is any acknowledgement of expertise as anything that should alter our thoughts or change the way we live. So... Basically, are you running a defense of elitism? Well, you know, part of the problem is that, uh, and in this last campaign especially, people have fused the notion of expert and elite. And they're not always the same people. Uh, but it's almost become a kind of resentful charge that if you're good at something, if you know a lot about something, if you have a lot, if you have a lot of background in something, you're an elitist. As one of my uh, friends likes to say, you know, elitism, if, you, if you're flying in an airplane, you want that pilot to be an elitist about flying. You don't want him to be uh, overly democratic about who should be at the controls. And I think uh, that that kind of elitism, um, you know, is something worth defending. But I think people have taken this notion of expertise and, and fused it to elitism as a way of saying, Anybody who knows more than you is trying to run your life and tell you what to do. And I think the president used that to great effect during the campaign to say, you know, we don't need these people telling us what to do. The Brexit campaign did the same thing. You don't need experts uh, running your life, telling you how to do things. But uh, it's really more of a defense of just knowing things and, you know, gaining knowledge and trying to 
listen to expert advice with a strong sense of critical thinking rather than simply telling people to just obey experts. Unfortunately, it it comes across that way when people use that term elitist. Well, and also, but the the flip side is, of course, uh, the the democratization of our our debate, that that everybody gets to participate in these debates. And and a lot of people really sort of believe that everybody is, you know, entitled to have an opinion on everything. We need to listen to all these voices and that, you know, everybody has the possibility of being an expert on pretty much everything. You know, right? (laughs) I mean, I'm all for the democratization of information and knowledge and for uh, the participation of people in their own system of government. I think one of the things that led me to write the book is that people not only want to express their views, but they want their views to be taken with equal seriousness on all issues, whether they know anything about them or not. Uh, People want to have very strong views about what we should do in Syria or North Korea or China, while at the same time, uh, they, they have to admit that mo- they don't know where Syria is. Um, you know, in a democracy, everybody gets to express their opinion. But in a in a republic uh, full of people who, you know, are engaged and participating in their own system of government, we don't have to take all opinions with equal seriousness. But but the experts, of course, have let us down in the past, haven't they? I mean, you know, we, we, we've you know, looked to um, experts to run wars. We've looked to uh, experts to solve a lot of problems, and they have failed. Isn't there a legitimate skepticism of the, the expert class? I think people should always be skeptical of anyone who says, look, just do what experts tell you to do. I, I, don't think, I would never encourage people to walk into their doctor's office and say, you know, whatever you say, I'm not going to seek a second opinion. Fill me up with, you know, stick me with whatever needle you happen to be holding. Nobody is trying to argue that. On the other hand, people focus on expert failures, which do happen. And of course, experts make mistakes. We're fallible. We're human beings. Uh, But they focus on those failures almost as a way of getting off the hook for ever having to listen to experts at all. Uh, Your doctor was wrong about eggs. Therefore, you don't have to listen to them about anything, including the fact that you might need to lose a few pounds. Uh, the experts uh, were wrong about, you know, the economy. Therefore, you know, you can you, you don't ever have to listen to anybody about how to manage your money. It really kind of gets out of control with this attempt to find every expert failure while never giving any credence to the many, many expert successes that help people live a you know pretty healthy life every day. You know, and this this dovetails, and you make this this point as well. You know, we've had a lot of discussion about whether we live in a post fact era. You're suggesting that we're also living in a post knowledge era, and this is one of the things that contributes to uh, the breakdown in debate. You actually write about how conversation becomes kind of exhausting. Uh, you you wrote at one point in politics. The problem is redi- uh, has reached ridiculous proportions. People in political debates no longer distinguish the phrase "you're wrong" from the phrase "you're stupid." To disagree is to insult. What did you mean there? The word that's at the root of all this, and the, and the word I use in the book uh, that perhaps rubs people the wrong way even more than elitism, is narcissism. I think America is in the grip of an epidemic of narcissism, where we are simply we've all become so thin-skinned and so attached to our own beliefs and so um, embracing of our own biases that we can never stand to be told we're wrong about anything. And when we hear that we're wrong, we immediately take offense. We immediately believe that someone's calling us stupid mm-hmm. or worthless, and we simply can't it, – that's it's why I say in the book, conversation is exhausting and exasperating. Because you, you have no common 
common basis of, of fact to be able to work around. Uh, there's also the loss of gatekeepers, which is a problem in this whole issue of fake news, not fake news. Uh, when it comes to determining, you know, what is what is true, what is real, the average person is kind of struggling with this, aren't they, Tom? You know, how do I know what to believe? Who, who, which expert do I rely on? What's what's the what's the answer to that? Well, there's there's no doubt that the world has fewer gatekeepers than it used to. And I suppose if you, sp- if you speak to younger people, they would actually tell you that's a really great thing, that we're no longer living in a world where, uh, you know, a bunch of old white guys in a corporation in New York City pick the half hour of news every night. And, and there's something to that, because I think, again, you know, diversity is a good thing, brings in more voices and more points of view. On the other hand, with no gatekeepers at all, it's easy for people either through ignorance or ill intent uh, to flood the zone mm-hmm. with bad information, to just completely overwhelm the public space with bad information. And I think people have to be a little choosier about this because I, I will put this much back onto the public that most people really don't go to the internet or to cable news or wherever they're going looking for new information. They go there to find information they already agree with. Confirmation and, bias. Exactly. And, and you know, the problem is, if you go looking for something you already believe, the odds are 100% you're going to find it. Was there a tipping point? How did we get here? Was there, was there one moment or one development that, that you know, turned this from, from, you know, from us from being a society, as, as you point out, back in the dark ages before the 2000s, when, when we actually understood the difference between <laughs> experts and laymen? You know, was there some moment or development that, that took us over the edge? Well, I, I don't think there was any one moment, but, you know, like like most conservatives, I want to blame all bad things on the 1960s. Uh, and I think and you're usually right. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. It's always a, it's always a good bet. Um, and I think sometime after the 60s, when we kind of embraced the continual youth culture, when we decided that, you know, self-actualization was the highest goal of every individual, um, that we really started to retreat into this. Uh, narcissistic bubble. And and you can see it in different areas. I mean, in education, for example, we started to adopt a very therapeutic model of education, where, you know, students' feelings were more important than things that were right or wrong. Uh, we started dov- we started segmenting the media into echo chambers, where people only had to find the stuff that made them feel good about themselves, that they already agreed with. And then, if there's one thing, I suppose, uh, I, I hate to ever point directly at the internet, because I think the internet came after this began, but it certainly put this phenomenon on a massive amount of steroids, where we carry this little galactic answer machine in our pocket that will tell us anything we want to hear at any moment. How, how much of this, though, is on the shoulders of the education uh, establishment? Have we dumbed down education? I know you've written extensively about about the uh, study showing the epic ignorance of Americans on science, on history, on on civics. Is, is there is there some responsibility of the education system? Yeah, although it, it, not in the way that you would think. I mean, I, I think that American universities, for example, are still the best in the world. I think that you can still get a great education in secondary education and even in K through 12, where I think there's a lot of good teachers doing a lot of tough uh, pulling and hauling to get kids through school. The problem is that we also have a philosophy behind all of this that says that, that children and young people have to constantly be affirmed. And that really builds up a hard shell around them against future learning. Someone asked me recently. So you don't tell them what we... you, you don't know. You're, you're wrong. Right. I mean, simply yeah. to tell them that they're wrong. Yeah. Some, someone recently asked me, how can we develop more critical thinking among you know, younger kids? And I said, well, for starters, stop telling them they're awesome every five minutes. 
you know, that that really kind of inculcates a resistance to ever learning things because learning is a process of making mistakes and being corrected and growing and adapting. And we just don't do that as much as we should. I, I mentioned, we had a brief conversation before we went on the air that uh, last, last week I was reading something from C.S. Lewis's classic, the screw tape letters, where he's talking about the sense, you know, that, that, that everybody is as good as everybody else. And I was reading it and it struck me, this is what Tom Nichols is writing about in his book, The Death of Expertise. And uh, you talk about C.S. Lewis and obviously, you were, would you say, you were somewhat inspired by by his view of of the of the negative side of democratization? Oh, without doubt. When I first uh, read that, um, Lewis first wrote those lines about uh, democracy, the deformation of democracy, through his literary uh, demon screw tape back in the 1950s, and what he saw coming was what we're living with now: this very narcissistic deformation of democracy, where people don't understand democracy as a political system of equality, but rather misunderstand it as an actual condition of equality. They believe that being in a democracy means I'm as good as you. And one of the most disturbing sentences in that whole piece by Lewis is when he says, you know, no one who says I'm as good as you truly believes it because they wouldn't say it if they did. Well, let's bring this around to to, to, to current events. Uh, you know, I, I, I was struck by a couple of things over the last uh, over the last week, including uh, Sean Spicer's comments about the use of, of of poison gas, which I I personally didn't think was a sign that he was a Holocaust denier. It was a sign of of his incredible historic uh, ignorance. Um, but what about the role of of experts in the Trump administration? And, and I know there's a very very mixed uh, bag here. I mean, we do have people like Jared Kushner, who has no foreign policy experience, right? You know, at all going on missions, being touted as somebody who's going to be, you know, taking the point with our relations with China, our relations with the Middle East. What are your, your thoughts about um, how this particular administration is dealing with this question of the death of expertise? I, well, I find it all deeply disturbing. And of course, the president ran against experts during the campaign. I mean, he got up and he said, the experts are terrible. They haven't done us any good. Would it be so bad if I didn't have experts? And he seemed to say, let's try governing without experts, which for the first 30 or 40 days. And voters like that. Prove. But I mean, voters Pardon? like that. Among, among the things that resonated with voters, it was exactly that you don't need any experience. You don't need any special knowledge of any of these fields. Exactly. And the voters, I think, are reacting to this because, again, when they hear experts, they think people who are running my life or somehow doing me harm. And I think most people never understand, just as I think the president is finding out the hard way, that there are a million moving parts to everything around them that they never see that actually experts do pretty well. And as we're seeing now, I mean, the president, you know, has been reversing course just today when he said – that geez, you know, I didn't. I talked to the president of China for ten minutes, and boy, it really is complicated. Well, yeah, who knew? Yeah, who knew that yeah, healthcare knew? was that complicated? Uh, who knew the tax reform was that complicated? Who there knew there the, were a <laughs> lot of experts who could have said, you know, Mr. President, this stuff's pretty complicated stuff. Might want to hold off on making those phone calls, you know, uh, on on uh, election night right, and, we, and the other things. We have to take a short break, and I want to then make a pivot to talk about some of those specific issues, including what is happening in the Middle East and Korea. You're listening to Indivisible Public Radio's National Conversation about America in a Time of Change. I'm Charlie Sykes. My guest is Tom Nichols, a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and the author of a book called The Death of Expertise. We'll hear more from him and take your calls right after the break. 
Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. About 600,000 people go missing every year in the U.S., prompting family members to become amateur detectives. On the trail of one missing person is journalist Tanya Mosley. Why do you think you hesitated when we first met in telling me the full details about your mother's disappearance? It's heartbreaking. I didn't want to break your heart. I'm Kai Wright. Tanya Mosley joins me next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. This is Charlie Sykes. We're broadcasting from the WNYC studios in New York. I'm talking with Tom Nichols, who is the author of a book called The Death of Expertise, which really seems timely. Um, if you want to weigh in on this, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the issues that uh, we're, we're dealing with in terms of foreign affairs. Uh, is there a Trump doctrine? And, and how are you reacting to the Trump doctrine that seems to have pivoted in less than a week from America first to America as willing to intervene around the world? Our number is 844-745-TALK. That is 844-745-8255. You can also tweet us with a hashtag indivisible radio. Uh, Tom, I, I saw you on Twitter the other day. Um, one of the cable talking heads said, we are closer to war now than we have been since the Cuban Missile Crisis back in the 1960s. You disagreed with that. Why? Well, I think that's, you know, I, I am deeply pessimistic about our relationship with Russia, but this notion that we're somewhere in, you know, October 1962 again, I think is just hysteria. Um, and it, I think people have not lived through a crisis recently enough right. to remember what they feel like. Uh, a, a crisis is not an ongoing, lousy situation. A crisis is something that will be resolved in a matter of days, either in peace or war. Let's talk about what's going on with North Korea. I mean, obviously, most of the debate has been focused on Syria and why we, we did all of that. But, you know, the, the, the president is clearly rattling sabers with the, the North Koreans. You have uh, a birthday, key birthday coming up. What is your take about what's going on there and what our options are? Well, first of all, the, de- the North Koreans threatening nuclear use or the destruction of the West, that's just another day in Pyongyang. I mean, that, they start their day that way. Uh, back in, in uh, the 90s, when uh, Bill Perry and Ash Carter were over there trying to negotiate, they were saying things like, tell us where you're from. You know, we'll turn that into a sea of fire. They used to use that one a lot. We'll turn it into a sea of fire. Uh, and so I think some of this is kind of the standard North Korean rhetoric. Um, the, the problem is now they've had a series of successful nuclear tests, and I think they're feeling themselves much more on a par with Japan, South Korea, the United States, much more able to resist uh, their patrons in China, who, to whom they don't seem to listen anymore. And I'm, I'm not quite sure what the government's policy – again, I don't represent the government here. I'm not quite sure what the president's policy is. Uh, on North Korea. I, I think one of the things we're seeing now in the early part of this administration is you should really be careful about some of the things you say on the campaign trail because they will come back to haunt you when you try to govern. Is there anything remotely like a Trump, uh, a Trump doctrine that, that you could articulate that, that seems to be emerging right now? 
I don't I don't see any coherence here at all that I would call a doctrine. Uh, I think, um, you know, I, I think people coming up with a Trump doctrine are almost from the outside trying to impose some kind of intellectual order or intellectual coherence on this. When, in fact, the situation might be just as simple as it looks. It may well be that the president just got emotional about the situation in Syria. Now, personally, uh, although I was in favor, even during the Obama administration, of intervening against Syria for a number of grounds, I don't think being upset or being emotionally distraught is a particularly good basis for a foreign policy. But I, I don't think there's any consistency here at all. We are, you know, we, we kind of harangue NATO and then we tell NATO how close we are to them. We tell Japan and South Korea that they'd better kind of get their ducks in a row and get their house in order. And then we start sending ships to the Pacific. Um, I, I think our allies and our enemies are feeling uh, whipsawed back and forth and understandably so. Yeah. Now, I remember, and we're going to hear some of this, I'm guessing, you know, over the next couple of days, you know, Richard Nixon had or was uh, it was, you know, attributed him that he had the, the, the madman theory that it's OK if uh, if the Soviets think that maybe I might do something crazy because it will make them fearful. Uh, and people are attributing this to Trump so that here you have a president who launches these missiles rather, you know, shocks the world against Syria and then starts steaming the fleet towards North Korea. Is it a good thing that the North Koreans and the Chinese now find the president to be unpredictable, or is that destabilizing? I, I personally don't think so. And it's important to remember that by the time Nixon, uh, and he never publicly enunciated it, but did say, hey, you know, if the North, North Vietnamese think I'm a little crazy, that wouldn't be the worst thing. It's important to remember that that was after years of public life in which Richard Nixon had a very clear and consistent foreign policy that you could observe in his time as a, as a, a member of Congress, as a vice president, in voluminous writings. Uh, so when Nixon would say, hey, I'm reaching the end of my patience, people would take that seriously because they knew who Nixon was and what he stood for. Whereas in this case, I don't think it's so much that unpredictability so much as it is randomness that that, you know, it's sort of you never know uh, what you're going to which, you know, kind of which policy you're going to get on any given day. And I think that's a different problem, because then it simply forces your opponents to just assume that you don't have any consistent or coherent preferences and uh, and I think that that makes things less stable rather than more. Let's go uh, to uh, the, the, the phones. Uh, George from Roseville, Minnesota. Uh, good evening, George. Welcome to Indivisible. Oh, good evening. I'm out here from New York, so it's good to hear you guys. Uh, what sparked my interest was the quote from Screwtape. Another exchange in that dialogue is, God wants me to think, what can I do? The devil wants me to think, What's going to happen to me? And I recall the Cuban Missile Crisis, and LeMay and the generals were pushing to bomb them because they were afraid of what might happen, whereas, you know, the late president actually could think beyond, and what can we do? And what troubles me, I mean, sending ships to Korea reminds me a lot of the missile crisis, and we have a commander-in-chief who has no direct experience with how disastrous war really is. So I'm somewhat troubled, and I wish we could think beyond how does this affect me and what can I do to correct the root All problem. Right. George, thanks for the call. Uh, you know, I, I thought it was interesting, uh, Tom. If you heard uh, the the interview that President Trump gave, where he's talking about you know how powerful these submarines were. These submarines are much more powerful even than the aircraft carriers. Well, yes, because they have nuclear weapons. He's talking about nuclear weapons. Yeah. <laughs> 
and, and I think um, I, I think we're too. I think uh, all of us, but I think it's especially disturbing. Obviously, the president doesn't. I think everybody in in um, the modern era has become a little too casual about the way we talk about nuclear weapons. I mean, one, I don't miss the Cold War, but one thing I, if insofar as I, I can look back and say that there was a better time, so people understood when they were talking about nuclear weapons, they were talking about something very, very serious. And now we sort of throw the word around as though, well, you know, it's just another tool in the box. It's not. I mean, nuclear weapons are different. And, uh, and I think we just talk about it too much. Uh, let's go to uh, Monmouth, Connecticut. Tom from Monmouth, Connecticut. You're on Indivisible. Good evening. Yes, good evening. So what do, uh, what, am I on? Yes, what do you think the yeah, Trump yeah. doctrine is? Uh, Trump doctrine is a person of um, color, African-American, and college-educated and proud of it. I think the Trump doctrine shows that, you know, strong military presence of America. But on the other side, I think it's uh, one of... Uh, hypocrisy of not taking care of business at home and that we can't be, number one, the world's policemen. I know there's world crisis in the way, but if we're going to respect human rights, we need to have a single standard, no matter if it be the Rohingya Muslims in Burma that's being oppressed, or in Africa, South Sudan, how come that's out of the uh, picture? And even back home, taking care of our veterans and the poor and the homelessness, nothing's been mentioned about that. And good okay. fences, don't, uh, yeah. fences don't make good uh, yeah. neighbors with well, along the What I want to ask you about this, the, the, the whole thing, we can't be the world's policemen, which I think that uh, you know Donald Trump made very clear during the campaign, but when they say you know any time you see these horrific pictures of you know children being gassed, we have to do something about it. Isn't that getting pretty close to being the world's policeman? The problems was with you know Vietnam and that and you know the war on poverty that didn't work out. Okay, thanks for the call. That's okay. I think we have. Uh, well, you know th- this this again is the, the there there was clearly a segue there between candidate and president, isn't there? Well, the problem is when you're a candidate, uh, it's easy to say things when you're standing in a you know parking lot in Pennsylvania or you're in a, a big uh, auditorium in North Carolina because you're not actually responsible for anything. And then you actually get behind that desk and you realize that everything you do has some kind of impact. And so I, I think you know this notion that, well, we can't be the world's policeman, that's easy to say until you're, you're confronted with the reality that not acting has huge costs as well. I think that's something the public tends to discount is that uh, they're very critical of American action and involvement. But then, you know, they don't think as John as John F. Kennedy himself once said, you know, the price of inaction can be dreadfully high as well. And I think, for example, with Syria, that price of inaction has been hundreds of thousands of people dead, use of weapons of mass destruction, destabilization in the Middle East. And there's been a, I think there comes a time when America has to stay engaged. And I hope that the president is now coming to that conclusion as yeah, well. And, and I hope that he surrounds himself with, with experts who understand, you know, the situation and the consequences of those decisions. Uh, Tom, we, we could spend hours talking about this. I appreciate you joining me. Tom Nichols is a professor of national security affairs uh, for the uh, United States Naval War College. His book is The Death of Expertise, strongly recommended, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge. Tom, thanks so much for joining us on Indivisible. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Okay. Have you heard that Indivisible is partnering with StoryCorps? The, the, we, the, the hosts and listeners of Indivisible, get to be the test group as StoryCorps thinks about how to use their model to conduct and preserve conversations across political aisles. 
So this week, actually just yesterday, I sat down for an experiment with my colleague Kai Wright, who hosts our show on Monday nights. And I would say that Kai and I have uh, very, very different um, you know, life experiences and political worldviews. So, but we volunteered ourselves to be guinea pigs, and we had a intense and personal conversation about our political differences and the roots of our politics. StoryCorps was there to facilitate the conversation. They didn't tell us what to say. Uh, you may have heard some of it on Brian Lair's show last night. They, had, they, they ran an excerpt. Uh, we're now asking you to participate in the experiment as well. So just send an email to listen at storycore.org with a subject line, Indivisible Interview, just to sign up. Uh, you can tell us about the person in your life who you'd like to talk to or volunteer to be paired with somebody who is on the opposite end of the political spectrum. Uh, tell us, you know, who you want to talk to, why, and what you want to uh, ask them. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. It is my pleasure to introduce our next guest. I remember, I remember I told you that when selecting guests, I'm always looking for people who are smart and interesting. Tom Nichols certainly was, and I, and I certainly know that uh, David French is as well. David French, who is a writer for National Review magazine and uh, very much a renaissance man. And it is good uh, to talk with you this uh, this evening, David French. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it very much. Well, I appreciate. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, <laughs> and and I know, uh, you know, one of the things that um, um, that was in the back of my mind. I, I know that you were in my home state of Wisconsin, uh, speaking in Madison for my friends at the Wisconsin Policy Research Institute, uh, and and I and I know that you were talking on the subject of the trends that are tearing us apart. And I was uh, I got s- so many comments about the event you did that that I kind of wanted to walk through some of the things that that you talked about. You know, one of the things that we're debating, you know, in 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 this new Trump era, is you know, is, is there any common ground? Uh, is right. there is there is there a Venn diagram between left and and the right? <laughs> and and I know that when you were in Madison, um, my my good friend Mike Nichols from uh, from Wisconsin Policy Research Institute um, read this paragraph to you, and I want I want to do the same thing for our audience. The numbers don't lie. The Pew Research Center's polling on polarization is sobering. Republicans overwhelmingly think Democrats are close-minded, immoral, lazy, dishonest, and unintelligent in that order. Conversely, Democrats think Republicans are close-minded, dishonest, immoral, unintelligent, and lazy in that order. So this, this, runs, this runs pretty deep, doesn't it, David? Yeah, you know, sadly it does. I started that event by, by asking a question of the audience, and I said, and I've been asking this and I've spoken on this issue in a number of places around the country, and I always begin with this question. Here, is, here it is. Can you name one important social, cultural, political, religious trend that is pulling us together as a country as opposed to pushing us apart? Now, there are things that hold us together. I mean, we have Great deep question. roots as a country, but what are the trends? And, and that Pew poll comes from uh, a study of political polarization. And, and what Pew has been finding, and, and they've written widely about this, is that the kind of polarization that we have in this country has been increasingly what they call negative polarization. In other words, uh, if I'm a Republican, I'm a Republican not so much because I really love Republican ideas, but more because I really don't like Democrats. 
And conversely, Democrats are Democrats more, not so much because they really love Democratic ideas, but because they really don't like Republicans. And and what ends, ends up happening is you find that ideology becomes more malleable, but anger and antipathy become more fixed. Yeah, and you know, this is fascinating, and, and really your explanation um, go, goes to one of the questions that, that had me scratching my head through a lot of the, you know, last last year, that it didn't seem to matter what specific position Hillary Clinton took or that Donald Trump took, that even when they flip-flopped on issues or reversed, it didn't change the polarities of, of politics. So so basically, this divide is over is, is certainly a lot more than politics, and it's a lot more than any specific idea or policy, isn't it? Right. I mean, it's, it goes to the bone. Exactly. <laughs> it's who do, who do I trust to look out for my interest? Who do I like? Who, who is it that cares for me or hates me? Mm-hmm. And, and when you start to talk about it like that, then you're beginning to talk about politics kind of at its most primal, um, even veering towards the sort of tribalism. Right. I was just about you, to use that word with you. Yes, exactly. And so when you're talking about that, and then, you know, that's sobering enough. And because remember what I said was, you know, there's let's talk social, cultural, political, religious. Um, if you look again and again, what you see isn't so in so many areas isn't so much the triumph of one view over the other is more of a what you would call the big sort or what Tyler yep. Cowen would call in his uh, his um, most recent book, uh, The Complacent Class Matching. So you have far more Americans living in what are called landslide counties. These are the counties where one side or the other tends to win an election by 20 points or more than uh, a, 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 a spiraling number. I mean, I believe almost double the amount of Americans live in landslide counties than did in just a few years ago. So in other words, not only are you uh, disliking the other side, you're less likely to even live in the presence of the other side, uh, and and that's a that's a geographic trend, and, and it's been that, going on and accelerating. I mean, the the, the number you just cited, I think we're getting close to two thirds of Americans who live in in a county that is a landslide county, which means that we have not only cognitively divided from one another, we have physically divided from one another, and it's certainly possible to go about your daily life never encountering someone who who has these <laughs> different points of view. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember being shocked when I was a student at Harvard Law School. I grew up in the South, in the rural South, and and I kept encountering students from Princeton, from Yale, from Stanford, who were saying, I've never met anyone like you. I was thinking, well, I'm not all that unusual. <laughs> I'm just a Southern conservative. There's a whole lot of us out there. But, uh, that, but that's becoming an increasing phenomenon, this lack of exposure to the other side. And then then you can move on into religion, and there's been a lot of talk about, you know, how America is secularizing. Well, let me let me take, you, let me take a break here because I, I want to get into all of this and, and who's most responsible and, and whether we can ever come back from all of this. We do have to take another break. You are listening to Indivisible Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of division and change. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we're talking with David French, staff writer at National Review Magazine. Stay with us. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. 
This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC in New York. You're listening to Indivisible. I'm here with David French, staff writer for National Review Magazine, senior fellow at the National Review Institute, also an attorney and an Iraq War veteran. You might remember the name because, of course, uh, he briefly toyed with the idea of actually running as an independent for president. We're taking your calls on this issue of, of being divided. And, and then David raised that question. He's asked the audience, if you could think of a single thing, cultural, political, where the nation is actually being drawn closer together, and I know that when you asked that question in Madison, nobody could think of a single, a single thing. Uh, our number is 84. So we'll ask our audience, is there anything that's pulling us together? And also, the other question I want to get to is, who's most responsible? What is driving this? Um, our number is 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. We're talking about this division. You were, you, were, you were mentioning the way religion is also playing into this tribalization of American culture. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of sort of top-line analysis that says America is secularizing. And and again, you know, the data shows this rise in the people, the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, not (laughs) N-U-N-S's, the the people who, you know, have no particular religious affiliation. But a fascinating article a year or so ago by Leo Labresco at 538, which is a website, I think it's uh, indispensable reading, um, and and she found that, look, if you extrapolate out the numbers, what's actually happening is America's becoming more secular and in some ways more religious. In other words, the religious traditions that are known as being sort of more uh, zealous and dedicated, like evangelicals or Mormons, are also growing, and that what's, mi- that what's disappearing is sort of the nominal middle. Uh, and so America is sorting, like it's sorting geographically, it's sorting religiously towards people who are both more and less religious. Uh, and, and so, again, here you have this trend. It's not that America is secularizing. It is secularizing, but it is also growing in absolute numbers the people who are more religious. And so that's, again, a point that creates challenges for unity around ideas and culture. And there's also what's happened with the media. I'm, I'm trying to think of uh, a passage from Charles Murray's book, uh, Coming Apart, where he talks about what life was like in uh, 1963, where the vast majority of Americans would be watching the same television shows. They would have the same cultural experiences. That certainly no longer exists. <laughs> you can have your own very discrete universe uh, on so many different levels today. Oh, that's absolutely right. Uh, several months ago, uh, the New York Times had these maps where it was showing the maps of popular television. Uh, and the funny thing was, especially to me as a huge Game of Thrones fanatic, is that if you look at the Game of Thrones viewing map, it's almost like lay, overlaying the Hillary map. Um, and if you look at sort of, for example, the college football viewing map, it's like overlaying the Donald Trump map. <laughs> and so you have people who just watch and are interested in different things. I found that funny because I, I have a I'm a red I'm a red state conservative who apparently has blue state television sensibilities. But the well, uh, I, I watch I watch Game of Thrones in order to understand the Trump White House. <laughs> I just, okay, let me ask you this, something else that, that you uh, wrote at one uh, one point um, about who who is responsible for this. And I think there's a long list of people. But you wrote at one point. A generation of liberal elites has grown up steeped in a culture that believes that millions of fellow Americans are not just wrong, but evil, racist, sexist, homophobic, and drawn to religious faith as a vehicle for their bigotry. Talk about that for a moment. 
Yeah, you know, that that's what hit me in the face when, I, again, as I said, I went from the rural south and went to a small Christian college in Nashville, Tennessee, to uh, Harvard Law School and, and really encountered this, this idea that was pervasive, that no one wanted to even hear what I had to say because what I had to say was inherently bigoted, or that even upon learning my uh, upon learning my political point of view, I was presumed to be a terrible human being, just a bad person. And you see a lot of that in, on, online. Uh, it cascades the more you speak. And one that, works, to, that works the other way around, though, as well, doesn't it? Well, you know, my, let me say this. Until the present campaign, I wasn't quite so sure <laughs> that right. it was because there was this old there was sort of this old stereotype that I'd heard so many times that conservatives believe liberals are wrong liberals believe conservatives are evil and I don't think that that's that I think that's a not an accurate um, perception anymore I think that there is a lot of con- a, a lot of fear and anger directed in in both ways now I think there's very little doubt about that and you see that on Washington in Washington all the time where essentially, you know, we have an ends justifies the means political ethic now because the worst possible thing would not be a violation of your own morals and standards, but the worst possible thing would be the victory for the other side. And you see that all the time. And, and really at the, at the heart of what you're talking about is, you know, there used to be this, what you described in, as, a politi- as a principled political opposition, which would be, okay, we disagree on these issues, but I'm going to deal with you honestly and fairly. I can still have a personal relationship with you. But that has now morphed into... You know, if we disagree, it's because you're bad and dangerous, and I'm going to try to defeat you and destroy you. Right. Well, and it's uh, we disagree because you're going to destroy America. <laughs> and that that was the kind of rhetoric that we've been running into for a very long time. And and when you say it enough, people start to believe it. But I think that it goes even beyond because, frankly, politics is downstream from culture, and and politics is as we both know, is really a subculture. I mean, not too many people pay daily attention to it. But the sorting, this matching, is a is a large-scale cultural issue. And I think it's a combination in many ways, and again, I'm borrowing from some of Tyler Cowen's ideas here, of technology combined with human nature. Um, it's very human to want to be with people who you uh, agree with. It's very human to want to be with people who share your common interests. And what technology has done is has allowed each one of us right. to kind of carve out that community and to do it relatively easily. So, so again, yeah. So let's. Uh, I'm going to uh, the, the the question that we've had uh, was: Is there any area where we are in fact coming coming together? Uh, Amanda from Norton, Massachusetts. You're on Indivisible. Good evening, Amanda. Amanda's a nurse. Okay, let's go to uh, let's go to uh, Chris from Little Rock, Arkansas. You're an indivisible. Good evening. Hey guys, how are y'all? Good. Um, so one thing I think is could be bringing people together. Um, hopefully, um, since you mentioned technology is increasing, uh, that's also leading to uh, increasing and more convincing evidence for things that used to be really controversial, uh, like evolution, climate change. Uh, even though that's really a huge wedge in between the two parties right now. Um, I'm confident. I teach AP Environmental Science, uh, so I'm always dealing with these type of uh, issues with my students. And I see this future generation that's coming up, and they're they're seeing this evidence, and they're seeing how we do this science. And I'm hoping that eventually this will bring the two um, 
you know, sides of the, the coin together. Okay, so, uh, and also another mm-hmm. thing that gives me hope is these um, uh, Republican uh, governors and uh, other legislators that are embracing clean energy, um, you know, all over the uh, the country. Okay, so. Chris, thanks for the call. So what, what do you think, David? Is, is that a possible area where we're coming together? Because i I got to tell you, I'm not seeing that. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think I don't think science is bringing us together because science, although it can answer scientific questions, it doesn't answer philosophical questions. It doesn't it doesn't bridge cultural gaps. So you could have a uh, uh, hundred Americans in a room who completely dis, uh, completely agree. Say, for example, that humans are involved in climate change. They will then complete start to squabbling based on things like trust, uh, past history, tribal. You know the sort of the geographic matching that we're talking about, about who's best equipped, who they trust to combat it, and what, through what measures, through what means, and to what degree, and how important is it to relative to other problems. And science can't, isn't really good at answering all of that stuff. It's better at sort of defining a problem, but defining the problem is not the same thing as trusting a solution. And are, are, are discovering who you're going to trust for the solution. And when you have cultural divides as great as we have, yeah. that's a real issue. Well, one of the uh, the callers off the air uh, throws up the possibility. What, what about something like uh, the legalization of medicinal marijuana? Is, is that one of those <laughs> issues that might cut across some of these cultural lines? You know, it does cut across political lines, but I don't think it's an important cultural moment or change. It's uh, you know, when when I was talking, there are things that that still bring us together, and some things that we agree with. I mean, like I don't think that uh, that United Airlines, for example, is very popular uh, right now. <laughs> but that is that a materially important change in our culture? No, it's kind of a moment. And there are things we do come to consensus on, or there are attitudes that change without adjusting the underlying greater growing split. Okay, now, now you, you've, you've, an, you've anticipated me that the one thing that I do see that was pulling America together was the reaction to United Airlines because of the, <laughs> the shared, shared experience. And you had a really interesting piece about, uh, about that, and I'm, I know we're sort of taking a, a veering off, but I, I actually found that in conversations um, that I've had with people across the political spectrum that th- there was not a huge divide because for some reason people found it as a way to identify. Now, people may, you know, some people may say this is why we hate capitalism or other people, you know, talk about, uh, you know, the, the you know, over-bureaucratization. But that was one of the things that, that I think touched a nerve, and, and maybe it's because we could all imagine ourselves in those circumstances, and it's an indication of sort of the imbalance of power, right? And, and maybe, the, and may, <laughs> whereas, whereas you wrote, just the complete death of common sense. Yes. Well, and it's the shared misery of air travel. I mean, I, <laughs> how many people do you know that say, boy, I cannot wait to get to the airport, go through security and sit in coach? I mean, that's just it's a means to an end uh, and particularly writers and professionals who travel an awful lot and have a platform. I mean, I, you know, that is one. There are common experiences that we do share that still, you know, that still when that when they happen, they're, they're interesting or we can be united in outrage or joy. For example, sports in 2016, although in one way the trend was towards polarization in the sense that we were seeing the politicization of sports, which I think is very negative for our right. culture. And another way, we it was one of the most delightful sports years in recent memory with you know incredibly thrilling finals in every single major sport. It was almost like a God was compensating for the 2016 political year by giving us an all-time great sports year. 
Well, not not to beat up on United Airlines uh, too too <laughs> much here, but uh, I'm going back to something that you had said about this uh, in, in in the article that you wrote. That in fact, the the airline apparently was contractually and legally allowed to you know demand that this this person leave. Um, but even even so, for a lot of people, I think it was this this, this symbol of of the abuse of power of authority. Yeah the arrogance, that everybody in this scenario basically behaved badly, didn't they? Yeah, you know, I mean, look, when you're talking about we're going to do involuntary removals from an aircraft after only bidding up to, you know, say $800 or 1000 or whatever that number was for a voucher, you know, that's an unreasonable position to take. To then talk to a doctor who says, well, I have to be back with patients and not give, say, for example, that doctor an opportunity to explain their plight to the rest of the passengers to perhaps get another volunteer. Again, unreasonable. Unreasonable to leave, use the amount of force on the doctor. But, you know, the doctor, uh, once he understood he didn't have a right to be there, to not get up, uh, to not move like three others did, you know, again, that's a reasonable but what we keep wanting to do is to draw things into this binary hero villain right and when you do that when you do that and when somebody takes upon themselves the hero role or the power role it immediately starts to cut out the opportunity for compromise cut out the opportunity for understanding and that's what we kept seeing in that circumstance it was sort of like this perfect storm of the you know the worst kinds of exercises of petty power that we see in our ordinary day or ordinary lives and and also i think the debate between left and right could actually be somewhat interesting because i know that some people would say well, okay here's an example of why we need more consumer protections we need more regulation to be able to bar this Whereas free market conservatives would say, no, there's a marketplace for this. You know, had they offered, you know, the passenger, you know, $2,000 or $3,000 as a market, that, you know, obviously would have been a good business uh, decision. Oh, let's go back to the uh, the phones here. Um, you know, as we're, we're trying to come up with something that might be pulling us together. And there's, there's not a long list here. Uh, let's go to uh, Indiana, Richmond, Indiana. Ralph, you are on Indivisible. Good evening. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Hey, uh, as I as I said, I I was raised Catholic, but I would consider myself a nun in O N E, not in U N E, like you guys said earlier. Um, however, I would say that the current Pope, while not an American figure, is definitely spreading uh, an inclusive message, uh, trying to bring people of all creeds uh, together, and I think that's resonating and tearing down a lot of a lot of walls that uh, different religions, especially the Catholic religion, have built up over the years. Okay, thanks, Ralph. What do you think about that, uh, the, the, the Pope? Because he clearly has a unique position in the world culture, world politics. Yeah, you know, I think that is a very interesting point, and I do think that he is a more unifying than divisive figure. I don't know how... how um, I don't know how vital or important he is in the contemporary American cultural and political dynamic, but he does provide an interesting example of a person who's becoming known for essentially saying, look, I, I, love, I love people in the name of Christ. That's, what, that's my job description. That's what I do. Um, and, and that's a unique role in the world. It certainly is. Um, but also, you know, the Pope doesn't have to make decisions about climate change. He doesn't have to set policy on Syria. He doesn't have to allocate judicial appointments. And when you start to move beyond that into that granular level in America, 
that's where all of the distrust starts to kick in. That's where all of the uh, personal loathing starts to kick in to the point where you can even have somebody beginning to take a position uh, that your own party took, you know, just a few years ago. And you can hate and fear them and, and distrust them, uh, even though they've come onto your side, because maybe you your your own side has moved on, um, and, and and that's where it starts to get really really poisonous. Uh, let's go to a Detroit, Michigan. Aaron from Detroit, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Good evening. Your guest wondered what is driving this schism in political thought, and I believe it is the right wing scare machine slash hate machine of AM talk radio and cable news. What does he think? Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, you know, um, I would say both sides are really good at scare, creating scare machines. Um, the scare machines that I have experienced on the other side of the aisle uh, are often concentrated in the academy, um, concentrated in uh, what we would call, you know, uh, concentrated in, in media outlets not so much, say, the New York Times, although there's sometimes elements of that there. I, I don't think I think that if you're going to point at one side and say they've created a scare machine, I would suggest that I could suggest any number of liberal mailing lists that I could put you on right now today. And you would be bombarded with some of the with apocalyptic messaging. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that's the whole point of, of having these alternative reality silos that demonize the other side and make yeah, it Im- Im- impossible. So, I mean, it, it's, it's very, very easy to say, you know, it, it, you know, it's all the left looking down on conservatives or the right wing scare machine. I mean, both of them have an element of truth, but they're not exclusive truths. Right. Right. Absolutely. I, you know, it's funny. I, I try to read you know, as much as possible from the other side and I'm all kinds of left-wing mailing mm-hmm. lists, even though I'm a conservative. And the language and the messaging it's, is no different. And it's not going to get no any different. better. Hey, we have to leave it there. David, thank you so much. David French, staff writer for National Review. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, Thanks so much. That's all for this edition of Indivisible. Tomorrow night, host Kerry Miller of Minnesota Public Radio explores how a shrinking middle class changes our social structure and our identity as Americans. Until then, you can keep the conversation going at IndivisibleRadio.com, where you can leave us a comment or a voicemail at any time. You can also tweet using the hashtag IndivisibleRadio. I'm Charlie Sykes. See you next week. Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.